Welcome back, everybody, to another new week of the Jerry Lawler Show. Thank you so much for joining us during this very interesting time in human history as we all face this coronavirus and this global pandemic, and everyone's kind of trying to figure out how they're supposed to go forward here together. So with me to uh, talk about this, and then we also have some fun stuff where we're going to talk about great names from Jerry's past. We have the King of Memphis, the host of Monday Night Raw, Jerry the King of Lawler. Uh, how are you doing? How's everything going? Hey, everything's good. It's a voice from your past, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, it's been a while since we've been back here with a with a updated or a new podcast. So, welcome back. Yes, yes, welcome back, everybody. You know, you said you just said uh, interesting. There was an old, uh, I think it was actually a curse that uh, an old curse from a long time ago that was said. May you live in interesting times. <laughs> That's funny. And and I used to hear that saying, and I would think, well, what is what does that mean? I mean, wh- why why is that a curse? And I think I think we're finding out right now. Uh, you know, if if you're just if things aren't in a turmoil or things aren't all uh, you know apple cart upset one way or the other, then things are going along smooth. But I would say that right now we're living in interesting times. Every time you turn around, there's something. There's some new bad news or something going on, so I, I think we're we're living that curse right now. Well, I know you've said that you're kind of a Twitter and news person, and I personally have been addicted for like 48 hours to just constantly refreshing and seeing what the new news is. Everyone should know, um, since news changes so quickly, this is March 13th at about 11.45 a.m. Central is when we're doing this. There and you go. Uh, the latest thing is the Masters, I believe, were canceled and I don't think anything else has happened today so far. But uh, the big thing is tonight, obviously. Well, you, you just told me that uh, you heard. I, I, oh, I the, just, the late oh, night talk shows, yes. Yeah, the late night talk shows are, I guess, going to go into reruns. And I saw that this is really big news. But this may be great news as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Joy Behar has said that she's not going to be on The View anymore <laughs> during because of Corona virus concerns so to me that's good news oh okay that's uh <laughs> i can see where you're coming from with that one um yeah i mean maybe that's what happened with the late night talk shows because you and i were talking about how uh you know they're professional talkers they should be able to just sit in a studio and interview somebody but maybe maybe the staff doesn't want to have to all be together i don't know i mean it's we're all figuring this out day to day a couple of days ago everyone was just like you know whatever we'll see and now it's it's gotten just intense. But we know tonight is SmackDown at the Performance Center, and they said only essential personnel there, so no fans. So this is uh, this is really a a first that I can think of in wrestling history. I I know didn't you guys have to do a show where the fans left for a bit because there was a bomb threat and you had to cut a promo or something? Oh, you're talking about in Memphis, TV? yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to. We got we got into a situation there one time. I don't know who we we never really could figure out. We had some ideas of who it could have been. Somebody with like an opposition wrestling that wanted to come in and and promote wrestling in our area. Uh, this was this was back during the day and time that you could just call the TV station. You you know what? Nowadays you probably could do the same thing, but somebody started calling the TV station while we were on uh, while we were doing our show live and said that there was. Uh, uh, a bomb planted somewhere in the studio 
And so it was a bomb scare and they would have to, they would have to completely evacuate the studio. And they, the people, whoever was doing it knew that that would disrupt our, our wrestling show. And so, um, I think it happened a couple of times and it finally got to where, you know, when the, when the call would come in, we, we just kind of took it with a grain of salt. We would, we would let the, the studio audience go out of the building for just a few minutes and for them to get kind of search through the studio. But then, uh, the, the, so then, but we would keep the show going. And yeah, I, I remember several times, matter of fact, one time we've had poor Dr. Frank, my friend Jim Blake was in the Dr. Frank outfit <laughs> inside a, inside a wooden box, uh, that, that looked like a big casket that we stood out there beside Lance and Dave. And, uh, and <laughs> we had to tell him, uh, well, you, we can't let you out. We, 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 we're, we're <laughs> off the air right now. We've got a bomb scare and this, so. He he had to sit through the bomb scare inside that wooden box, you know. But yeah, that happened to us a couple of times. But I mean, there's all there's there was just always ways to you know just I would go out and just nobody would be left in the left in the studio except one cameraman, Lance and Dave and myself. And uh, and that one time Jim Blake was in the box. But yeah, we just cut a promo for as long as it you know ten fifteen minutes or whatever as long as it took for them to check the studio out and make sure that there was no bomb or anything like that. But this is, uh, this is going to be a little different. This is going to be trying to do an entire, entire, uh, two hour show with, um, you know, with no fans. Now I think you watched, we all watched NXT the other night, right? Yes. That, that was, that was from the performance center. And I'm, but I guess that was just with a regular performance center audience. I mean, a lot of the same people that used to go to Full Sail, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I did see that they said that there's, you know, like your, your family or essential personnel or whatever. There will probably be some people in there to to sort of comprise a, a, a bit of an audience, I would think. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm just guessing now. I can't wait till tonight to find out exactly what's going to happen. Um, and then I also can't wait till Monday to find out whether we're going to be in Pittsburgh with Monday Night Raw or where that's going to emulate from. Yeah, a lot up in the air, obviously. Um, AEW the next two weeks has already announced that they're they're doing limited audience engagement at the building they own in Jacksonville. So it's hitting everybody. And you're right about tonight. I figured at first when this whole thing happened, at least I could gather up like a hundred fans just to have some sort of wrestling show atmosphere. But I, with the way everything just keeps escalating every day, I don't know if even that is possible. People are allowed to sit together that are strangers. Well, you know, I think most places I, I hear that like the governors or mayors or something like that are sort of kind of banning uh, events that would have more more than. I don't know, a certain number of people, like 250 or something like that. Uh, I just know that for what seemed like 100 years, I mean, for forever that I can remember back in the going, you know, I started in 1971 uh, doing the, our live TV there in Memphis. But, of course, Memphis TV was on for a long time before I started back in the 60s and everything. But all the way up till the 2000s, uh, you know, we could never have more. So we did it in a studio, and there was never more than a hundred people in this in the studio audience. And when we did it back on Channel 13, uh, I bet there wasn't 
probably 50 or 60 people in the studio. That's all the studio could hold when you once you put the ring in there. I mean, we, we literally had, at Channel 13, we literally had one row of fans or two rows of fans that are sitting on little bleachers uh, around the ring there. So, I mean, you know, and, and nobody even thought anything about it. It was still, the, you know, a lively group, and, and it gave it, like you said, it gave it that, that element of least uh, a semblance of an audience there and somebody getting excited about the matches. So, um, I mean, I, I would think if, as long as you got, if you, if you could put up, and I, and I don't think anybody would mind you if you had a, you know, they wouldn't scream uh, if you had a, a hundred fans or so like that in, in the studio or in the uh, performance center audience. And, and I still think, I mean, like I said, we did it for 20, over 20 years, 30 years on uh, Memphis TV with less than 100 fans in the audience, and nobody thought a thing about it. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe if things calm down a little bit, we can get a little return to, to studio wrestling and get some <laughs> of that atmosphere. Well, you know, I've been reading, uh, I'm sure you have too, on Twitter about uh, the NWA and everybody talking about how they liked the fact that it was bringing back the old school studio look of, uh, of wrestling and you know, it's, it's a lot of people, a lot of the younger fans don't even know what that looked like. Uh, but it was cool. It was always, you know, it was it was a, a more intimate thing. Uh, and and to me, it always worked well. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure that's sort of what they're going to they're, they're going to have to go with, because I, I've been in the performance center a thousand times. And the part where they have the ring is not I mean, it's, it's pretty big. But it's not huge, you know. It'll certainly there's no way that that's going to look like a, a huge arena. I mean, so many people don't realize that talking uh, and your promos and and your and relating to the fans and and getting the fans to you know not only believe in you but to sympathize with you or whatever that only comes through being able to talk and communicate with the fans. It doesn't, you know, going out to the ring. I've always believed that what you do inside the ring is secondary to what you do in front of the camera. You know, it's like you talk the fans into the building. You talk the fans into into believing in you or into liking you or disliking you. And uh, that, that doesn't come from what you do inside the ring. So I'm, I'm, I think that this can be a great opportunity to uh, get some guys over and some women over. Uh, because they'll have more, I, I think, more of an opportunity to uh, to express themselves, to talk to the fans, and and um, to me, that's that's always a good thing. Yeah, and you know, if if Raw ends up going the same way uh, with Paul Heyman being influential there, ECW was all about you know music videos and pre-produced uh, interviews and things like that, and I wonder if we'll see a return to more out of the arena uh, type content like that if there's no audience there. I mean, are we going to have like matches that go through commercial if there's no audience? The wrestlers, you know, can't <laughs> communicate. Uh, I mean, it's just, I don't, we'll, we'll find out tonight. The listeners yeah. will know by the time they're listening, I guess. May we live in interesting times. It's going to be interesting to find out exactly what's going to happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, we, you and I have talked about this. I did an interview late last night with uh, CB, CBS Sports Radio, I think out of maybe Houston. And uh, the guy, of course, all the, the announcer wanted to talk about was, 
you know, is WrestleMania going to be canceled and the coronavirus and all of this kind of stuff? And then he got around just to talking to me personally. And uh, I think that's, I think it started at like 1020 last night and my uh, the central time. And so we, I, I don't even remember. But anyway, I had to clear my throat a couple of times. And the guy said, uh, King, uh, I just I noticed you're clearing your throat and coughing there a little bit. Uh, <laughs> And and we noticed that, of course, you know that may be one of the that may be one of the symptoms of, of coronavirus, and and you know you're in that age limit where it could be uh, uh, really bad and everything. Are you not concerned, or do are you feeling any kind of symptoms? And I then I had to go in to explain the guy about. Uh, I, I, I took the whole I took the whole interview away from the coronavirus and went back to when I had my cardiac arrest on Monday Night Raw. And I explained how that all went down and, uh, and, and that the fact that, uh, you know, that, that they shoved that ventilator down my throat while I was basically dead. And of course they're, they're trying to save my life. And, but it, it did, it, that ventilator in my throat had some lasting effects. I mean, I've been back to the doctor four or five times since then just to have my throat checked because of, um, I mean, I, it's, it's one of the things that, that just came with that after I got the, ventilator out it's like i have to constantly clear my throat it's like uh and and it's believe me it's rough on monday nights i have to have my finger on the cough button and sometimes you can probably hear my voice going but that's just that was just a that was just a uh you know the one one of the things that happened along with the cardiac arrest so anyway uh if you hear me <clears throat> clear my throat every now and then that's that's the problem i don't have the coronavirus i'm just uh I just have damage to my vocal cords is what the doctors told me that they said, um, you know, they looked down there and said, yeah, that uh, that was caused by that, you know, that ventilator being kind of shoved down your throat. And and they, and they said sometimes that will clear up and sometimes it never clears up. And in my case, I don't think it's going to ever clear up. It's just uh, something I'm going to have to live with, you know. Yeah, we're, we're going to be in some trouble if uh, every time somebody clears their throat, uh, everybody evacuates the area. Um, but I mean, it's interesting. I was watching, um, some of Colbert actually, just because I was interested in the fact they had no audience. And how can you stand, how can you stand to watch that guy? Uh, don't usually. Of all the talk show hosts I've ever seen, he is like the the worst. Really? Now, I, I respect your opinion on this with your talking and comedy and everything. I can't stand him. Who's your favorite? Oh, gosh. Probably still Conan O'Brien. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I was. I love Conan. I grew up with that show being the the hip thing for the kids back in the late nineties and two thousands. So um, there'll but, never be there'll never be another David Letterman though. Oh, I just posted something about um, Letterman already showed how to do this. I, uh, there's this hardcore fan who's got tons of videos up on YouTube, and there was this show he did from an empty airport, like in the eighties. <laughs> Just oh, as because really? remember he was just all about playing with the formula and you know switching up expectations. So yeah, he just did this whole show. <laughs> it was ridiculous. That was what Letterman was doing in the eighties. But uh, anyways, you know, I, and speaking speaking of Letterman, and you said you were watching the same thing happened to me yesterday. Something came. I don't know what I was looking for on the internet, but I was on YouTube, and all of a sudden the um, one a clip came up of Andy and I on Letterman. There you go. And then you know how you go on YouTube and all of a sudden something else will come up. And when you finish watching that, something related to that video will come up. Well, somebody had put up an entire uh, – and it, it was over two hours long. But it was 
back to back every episode of David Letterman's show that Andy Kaufman was ever on. Oh, I think that's probably the same guy that I watched. Really? Yeah. Well, it was it was really cool, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, I've started watching that, and I I didn't even realize myself. I never realized how many times Andy was on there talking about uh, our our match. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, oh my gosh, he was a, he he talked about it and built it up two episodes before we were ever on there. He even he 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 wanted to show. Uh, he was on one time talking about the fact that he's going to accept the challenge. And uh, then they ran out of time, and he was trying to tell Dave. But I, I brought some clips. I wanted to show you what Jerry Lawler said about me. And Dave said, well, Andy, I'm sorry we're out of time. Boom. Oh. And he was and so then it was like the next day or two days later, they brought Andy back, and he's sitting back. He's, Dave comes on, and he says, well, I just got a note here. It says that Andy Kaufman is sitting in the green room, and he wants to uh, – he wants to show the, uh, you know, the clips that he brought the other day and we didn't have time for. It. He said, is, is Andy really in the green room? And of course, Dave gets up, walks back to the green room and there's everybody. There's Andy sitting there talking to Slim Whitman, who Andy was a huge fan of Slim Whitman. But anyway, they're, they're sitting there talking and then Dave sits down with him and, and Andy shows the clip of me talking, you know, um, uh, talking about how, how I'm going to, beat Andy up and all that sort of stuff. And then, then of course, the next time uh, he and I were on there, and then after that, two more times after after we were on there, uh, he, he came he, – every time he came back, he kept talking about the match. I mean, he must have talked about it on, on like six or seven episodes. Ah, well, we definitely have to do a whole episode on Andy Kaufman because I have so many questions. Um, but uh, the one thing I was just going to mention that Colbert said was, like, we, we're trying to balance – uh, not falling into hysteria, but taking the proper precautions. And we're just kind of figuring that out right now, I feel like. Like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to – I can't not leave the house for a year or not go to the gym. Uh, so I'm actually wrestling tonight in Bradford, Tennessee. That's another one of these uh, events. Uh, Burt Prentice will book these shows where – uh, they're, they're fundraisers for different schools around the area. Bradford High School is doing a fundraiser for their, uh, their sports teams. And the, the principal of the Bradford High School is going to be my partner against Doug Gilbert and Matt Riviera. And, and so that, that I, I called Bert yesterday and I said, Bert, uh, I'm really thinking, having second thoughts about going to this thing. Oh my gosh. If, if you don't, if you don't come, I'll have to cancel the show. We can't have the show if you're not there. And um, and so anyway, we talked a little while. Burke Prentice has, is able to talk me into anything. And so the next thing you know, I said, "Okay, I'll be there." Uh, I said, "But you know, you gotta you gotta have the mat and and, and everything all sanitized." And he said, "Oh, I promise, I swear I will. I'm sure he'll have a can of Lysol out there, spray the mat down before the before the show." But uh, I'm go so I'm gonna go ahead and do the show tonight. And I and I just think, like you said, you cannot not go out of your house you can't you can't i just think you can't let this uh let this change your whole life yeah maybe maybe not a, a slap on the hand for every fan of the building during your entrance <laughs> yeah that, that that did we did talk about that i think instead of uh you know we take we usually take 30 30 minutes at least during the show to go out to what we call a gimmick table and sit there with our pictures and merchandise and and take pictures with the fans and sign pictures and shake hands and, and 
could hold babies and that sort of thing. And I told him, you know, we, we'll, we'll pass on that on this show, but uh, we'll go out and, and do the matches and, and have the show for the, for the school to benefit their, their sports program there. Yeah, I really felt bad. There's a, a company in Ireland that I really like called OTT who had a their biggest show of the year coming up this weekend and they had to cancel and somebody actually created a GoFundMe and they've raised like $5,000 of fans just donating to try to help the company because it's such a big financial hit for them. Um, thankfully, when you're talking about WWE, it's it's not a matter of survival like that. It's just producing content for the the TV contracts and figuring out how to do that. Yeah, and then back to the WWE and the reason that guy, the CBS radio, called me last night. You know, they they want to talk about WrestleMania, and that of course is everything. Like you said, everything, even late night talk shows now are, are being canceled, uh, and that's that's one of the things that I think they're just jumping the gun on. I I, I don't know. Uh, I think that's the knee jerk panic reaction to go ahead and cancel these things so quickly, uh, but. As of right now, as, as we speak, doing this, uh, doing this podcast, WrestleMania is still on. It hasn't been canceled yet. Yeah, uh, I'm <laughs> nervous about that one. I'm nervous about that one, but we will see. When you say you're nervous about it, you're, you're expecting the shoe to drop any minute, right? I'm just wondering how we're possibly going to pull off a, an international gathering of 70,000 people in a month or whatever it is, a couple of weeks. Um, but I hope it's not, I would love to see, I just don't know what's going to be allowed. Like I'd love to see it move to some sort, like a thousand seat arena or something where you can have, we, I think it's a great card and you can't just say, all right, all these matches are going to get postponed for the summer or something like that. Like they're being built up for right now. Yeah, I, I don't see any way that you could just say uh, we're going to come back and try to do this in July. Oh yeah, well, I take it back. I guess you could. I guess you could still, you know, work on that same build all the way up till July and add some more matches to it. But um, I, I think the fact that it's in an outdoor, open air stadium makes it somewhat different than if you're oh, everybody were crammed up, you know, inside an in, indoor arena. I don't know, but then you know, baseball—they—they've already canceled or at least pushing back their. Uh, they canceled spring training. They're pushing back their start of the season for two weeks. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about your Indians. So so far, it's only just two weeks postponed. Yeah. Okay. Right now, that's what they're saying. But they stopped spring training. Ah. Uh. So uh, and uh, you know, I was I was looking at uh, one of the guys that was 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 is on Twitter a lot is a guy named Jason Kipnis. And uh, he's he was the second baseman of the Indians for a long time, and now they he, he was a free agent, and, and I guess it looks like he signed with the Chicago Cubs now. But he was just he was on Twitter last night saying, uh, "Well, you know, the baseball players are concerned. Like, uh, what's going to happen? Nobody, they're really not telling us anything. We don't even know if we're going to get paid." And and somebody came on and said, "Oh man, that's that's pretty." shallow you're worrying about getting paid and you know when people are dying and everything and, and then he came back and said hey everybody worries about themselves and that's one of the you know that's one of the things that um, i think anybody would would worry about are, are you going to have an income during this crisis you know so um well that's anyway, that the very 
sad reality to a lot of this that we're not really talking about right now because we're so focused. I mean, I know you're not supposed to talk about the economic impact, but there's a lot of people, businesses that are week to week, month to month, paycheck to paycheck that are just getting hammered right now. And I just, I'm just nervous about where this is going to be in a few months. Yeah, exactly right. And that's why, you know, and the, and the thing that if you sit and watched any of this on television, you realize that unfortunately this is so sad that this thing is all of a sudden with everybody, um, everybody's, you know, future at stake in one way or the other, <clears throat> this whole thing is being politicized by the people that are, you know, that control our lives, all the politicians. It's like, well, let's not worry about what's going to be best for the, for the nation and for the people themselves. Let's worry about what's going to be best for the Republican party or the democratic party. Let's, you know, and it's just, it's, that's sad. It's, you know, like, it's funny, you know, we talk about things being a work, uh, in wrestling and we have our, we have our fans and sometimes they're called marks and everything. Unfortunately, you know, politics, <clears throat> excuse me, there goes that throat. Politics is the biggest work of all, and we're and you're forced to be a mark. You know, we we, we don't have any choice. Yeah. At least watching wrestling, you have a choice. You can watch it or not watch it. And in politics and the way the world's run, we're forced to be marks, and the politicians are pulling the strings, and 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 we we can't really do anything about it. Yeah, it is disappointing to me. I thought maybe this would be kind of like 9-11, and I know this isn't that bad yet, but I thought maybe we would just all come together for like a week and like support each other, but no, the the political stuff didn't end for a second. No, it's you know, it's only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse. Well, uh, should we try to take people's minds off it for a little bit here and just talk about some uh, old school memories of yours? Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. All right. And right, and right now, I wanted to let everybody know that Fitzmania <laughs> that we've been talking about, Fitzmania is still on track. It's still scheduled for April the 25th, which is almost a month after WrestleMania. So uh, right now, it's at Fitzgerald's Casino down in, in Tunica, Mississippi. Just sent them some more information today. That's where we put together when you're talking. We're going to be talking about some of these names in a few minutes, but we put together a main event for Fitzmania that's 30 years in the making. It's going to be 30 years since all of these these different personalities have been in the same ring at the same time. And I even Paul Heyman, I talked to Paul Heyman the other day, and he said he's doing Austin Idol impersonations. He's doing Tommy, <laughs> Tommy Rich impersonations. He's talking about this match. And I said, look, I got, I got to get you to cut a promo. Will you cut a promo for me? And he said, oh, my gosh, of course I will. I said we really need you there and everything, but anyway, he said he said of course he'll cut a promo for the match, you know. But anyway, it's Austin Idol teaming with Tommy Rich and Doug Gilbert, three of the individuals that uh, did the most damage to me at different points in my career. Tommy Rich and Austin Idol, of course, you know, the only two that ever, along with Paul Heyman, that ever shaved my head in a match. And then, of course, Doug and Eddie Gilbert were in the car that ran me over in the parking lot of Channel Five. So we got. Tommy Rich, Austin Idol, Doug Gilbert on one side are going against me, superstar Bill Dundee, and we threw in a wild card of the Boogeyman, Ooh. the guy that eats the worms and all that kind of stuff. The Boogeyman is going to be our partner, and we're going to have handsome Jimmy Valiant as the special referee in this match. Wow. So, yeah, when you get all, that's that's a group of guys that, like I said, haven't been in the same ring 
together in 30 years. So it's going to be awesome. That is a spectacular uh, thing for Memphis wrestling fans to see all of you guys in the same ring, and especially Idol and Rich teaming again. Oh, absolutely! So so excited about that. And then we got uh, uh, we got Coco Beware, the Birdman, teaming with uh, JYD Junior. This guy, I mean, he looks. If you talk about somebody that's a uh, as far as he could pass for a junkyard dog, you would just look at him and say, "Oh my gosh, it's JYD." But anyway, they're, they're going to, against uh, Jimmy Blaylock's Mississippi State Tag Team Champions. And, and King Cobra, former uh, USWA world champion, is going to be in the corner of Coco Beware and JYD Jr. Uh, and then we got uh, the old bruise brother, Porkchop Cash, is coming back. And he's found a young lady that he's calling the bruise sister. He's bringing uh, her in to go against uh, a young lady named... Um, what is, oh gosh, I, don't get me lying about the names here. We'll give you more information about that, but we've got a great women's match on the card. So it's going to be in Matt Riviere's there. It's going to be a really fun night. Fitzmania at Fitzgerald's Casino, April 25th. And, um, uh, you know, I hope that, that that is able to go on. Right now we're planning and, and shooting for it on April 25th. Sounds fantastic. Did you see uh, – there was like a Raw or a SmackDown a couple months ago where there were two people in the crowd dressed in suits like the Bruise Brothers, and they had signs for uh, Pork Chop and uh, Dream Machine. No, where was that at? <laughs> I'll have to go back and look it up. It was somewhere in the south, and there were – yeah, there were two people dressed in suits that were – they had these Bruise Brothers signs. It was great. Was it Raw or SmackDown? I think it was Raw, but I think it was – it must have been before – you came back, or else we would have talked about it. Yeah, I would have def- if I'd seen those guys in the audience. I would have definitely recognized them for sure. I'll look that up, and if I can find it, I'll tweet it on the the Jerry Lawler Show account and uh, tag you on that. Cool. Um, okay, so uh, I'll let it. Should, just- we, tell, should we tell anybody uh, about uh, the news that we're talk- that we you and I were talking with the people the other day about the future of the podcast? Do you think that's definitive enough? I'll leave that to you. Well, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. Maybe we should hold off a little bit. But may, there may be some big changes coming to the future of the Jerry Lawler show, this this podcast. Uh, we may be going in a different direction that should be really exciting for everybody. Maybe. Yeah, and we, we should know in like the next week or two. It's not, not, not going to be months. Yes. All right, so what we thought we would do today to help take your minds off the uh, – current stresses of the world is i have a list of names here from jerry lawler's past and today we're going to be focusing more old school and then if we do this again we could do more of the wwe run uh and we're just going to ask jerry for his first uh just story or memory or impression or things like that I, I tried to pick some interesting names here that we haven't heard you talk about on the show like uh for example jesse ventura had a, a quick run in in memphis do you have any memories of the future governor Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Jesse came down and he got involved with uh, uh, it was about the same time that Andy Kaufman was there. Um, and and so Jesse, <clears throat> excuse me, came down and he the best I can remember, he won the uh, heavyweight championship from me. And I, the reason I know that uh, he, he never lost it. I just saw Jesse not too long ago. Well, actually, at WrestleCon last year. And I was walking past, and Jesse was sitting at the at his table, 
and I just kind of waved and he saw me and he said, Oh my gosh, come here. And he had a long line of people that he was, uh, you know, that was waiting to get his autograph. And all of a sudden he stands up, he puts his arm around me and he cuts a promo to everybody that was in his <laughs> line. He did. I mean, just an old school promo. He said, Hey, everybody, this is, yeah, look at this, Jerry King Lawler. And he said, I want you to know this is in my book. This is actually in my book. I am the only man, the only wrestler that ever came to Memphis, Tennessee and beat Jerry Lawler for the World Heavyweight Championship and never lost it back. I never lost the title back to Lawler. And that that was the true, that was the statement. And, and, and he's really proud of that fact that I guess that he put, he was so proud of it that he put it in his book. But, yeah, Jesse came down, and it looked like we were going to, uh, I mean, you know, he was really, really popular at the time, and it looked like we were going to get a get a long uh, run out of Jesse and I and involve Andy Kaufman as well. And then um, once he, he won the title and he went back home and something, this this part I'm, I'm just a little vague on, but something happened uh, health-wise to Jesse's daughter. Oh. And and he was unable to come back and, and, and do the uh, – the book is something happened and he, he had to take some time off from wrestling. And so, uh, we had to go in a different direction, but that was, that was, uh, the deal where he, he, we had to say that, uh, I think we had to say that he lost the title somewhere up in Minnesota or something like that. But yeah, he, he did come down. We had a couple of matches. He won the, he won the unified heavyweight championship and then he didn't come back to defend it. So uh, he's got that in his book, and that's his big claim to fame now. For some reason, I'm the only—he's the only guy that that beat me and didn't lose back to me. So, uh, but yeah, no, Jesse was Jesse was fun to work with. I'll never forget that was in one of the matches. Um, I don't—I I think it was a deal where Jimmy Hart. Uh, I think Jimmy Hart was bringing in people, and and we worked it where uh, Jimmy Hart brought in. Uh, Jesse and then we for some reason I don't even remember how this kid named this guy named Ted Giannolis is that name ring a bell that one actually doesn't Ted Giannolis was the San Diego chicken oh okay yeah the San Diego chicken was was going around the country he was huge at that time and this guy in this chicken suit, he was, of course, he was the mascot for the San Diego Padres at the time. And then, uh, he started making appearances all around the country at different kind of personal appearances. And so then we had him, we had him come into Memphis and, and, uh, into our territory and, and he did the wrestling, uh, uh wrestling circuit there for a while. So um, I remember one of the big matches with me against, uh, against Jesse Ventura. I had the San Diego chicken in my corner as my, as my manager and everything. But yeah, Jesse was, Jesse was a, a, a fun guy to work with, real easy, real easy going guy and, and, and had great interviews. And then of course later on when I ran for mayor, um, I, I met with Jesse one time and talked about, uh, he gave me some tips on, he, he had been, you know, he was, uh, I don't think he, yeah, he may have been governor at the time, uh, or just been governor. Uh, up there and, and he of course started out as the mayor of some small city before he became governor and he just gave me some tips and, and told me a few things about you know I, I mean I was I was in this race for the mayor of Memphis and and I said Jesse what what do you you know what do you have to do what does what does the mayor do and he said nothing absolutely nothing 
I said, what do you mean? He said, no, you don't have to do anything. You're just like a figurehead. You have all these people around you that you tell them what to do, and they do everything, and you don't have to do anything. He says, the easiest job in the world. I said, okay, cool. But anyway, he, uh, he, he, yeah, he came to Memphis, and he was there. And, uh, don't put me on the spot to say how many weeks that we that he worked there with us in Memphis, but he was he was a fun guy to work with. All right. Uh, how about his uh, his hero? From what I've heard him say, uh, who was the first CWA heavyweight champion, uh, superstar Billy Graham. Well, superstar Billy Graham was a cool guy too, uh, and and he, I didn't know what to. I you know I'd heard. Uh, a whole lot about the guy and seen a lot of seen a lot about the guy when he was up in WWF at the time uh, before he came to Memphis and uh, we we got we got superstar Billy Graham to come in when of course he was you know he was on he had already finished up his uh, WWF run and and he was on the you know port towards the end of his end of his career uh, but we brought him in as the CWA World Heavyweight Championship. This is when Jerry Jarrett and I started up uh, uh, our our own promotion there in Memphis, and and uh, we wanted to have a, a of course a world championship. So, so we started our own uh, organization called Continental Wrestling Association (CWA). I made the just sat down, and drew a logo for it, and all that sort of stuff, and made made the championship belt. I, I think I actually. If I remember right, uh, actually made the belt myself. It's, it's sort of like, remember, you know, when you were a kid and you made a cardboard belt, a championship belt, and all that kind of sort of stuff. Well, this was, this was a little, a little, not not too much further advanced than that. But I actually made this belt, metal, leather, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I, that was I, I stretched my artistic abilities to their limit doing that. But anyway, I made the championship belt myself, and we brought in superstar Billy Graham as the CWA world champion. And, and, and I worked with him and, uh, and became the, you know, that's when we became the uh, CWA world champion. And that it's, that established that in our, in our Memphis territory at that time as the, as a new, because up until then we had already, we had always been under the, uh, the NWA banner. And so this was our way to get out from under the NWA and start in on on our own because Nick Nick Goulas was still uh, running uh, in in Memphis. This was when we first Jerry Jarrett and I first split off and became our own company, and Nick Goulas was still uh, NWA. So we started up our own organization called CWA. Brought in B- Billy Superstar Graham to kind of legitimize it, and and it did. I mean, he was, you know, everybody knew Superstar Billy Graham. I mean, he had a, such a huge run in the WWF at the time. So uh, uh, he he was and he was cool. I mean, he was the guy. He was one of the first guys that uh, I guess kind of set the tone on the way I like to work. I like to work with big guys that where I was the you know total underdog in the match. And and of course, you know, there wasn't anybody that was any bigger than superstar Billy Graham at the time. So, uh, uh, easy, easy to work with real, uh, real, uh, just real easy going guy. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about him and didn't get to know too much about him either because he wasn't there with us very long, but, um, but he, he came in and did the, uh, you know, did the job for us really well. I mean, he, he, Gave us, he legitimized our our whole company there by coming in as a champion. 
Okay, another couple of big guys who I think you had some matches with that people still enjoy watching, the Road Warriors. Oh, gosh. The Road Warriors. <laughs> they were, you're right. I mean, we had some uh, fun matches with those guys and some matches that at first weren't so much fun. I mean, there was these we, – we got – we had the Road Warriors come through when uh, when Hawk and Animal were really, really just getting started. And uh, they were they were really kind of looking for their direction, and of course they were huge, and they were you know the big the muscles, and they were just getting started with the shoulder pads and all that to face paint and everything, and they um, you know they honestly they just they didn't know really how to work yet. They just they knew just to go in and and they you know they had them some real impressive moves because of their size, you know the big press slams over the head and. You know, it was a. You know, they just didn't sell stuff, and that. And we, we. Uh, I, I'll never forget. I think it was me and Austin Idol working against them. And man, Austin Idol and I at that time we we had, we were partners in Memphis, and we were like an unbeatable tag team in Memphis. You know, we were the top guys, and all of a sudden, here comes the Road Warriors, and you know, we showed some we showed some footage and some uh, and interviews of them coming in before that we got them there actually live at the Coliseum, but. Um, the one thing I'll never forget, uh, you know, this was, I can't, I can't remember what year, but of course it was after the, uh, I think it was after the Andy Kaufman stuff, but, um, where the pile driver was, you know, the pile driver was my, that was my finisher and nobody got up from the pile driver. You were just, you know, you got the pile driver and the match was over. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm just I'm talking to these guys before the match, and I don't even know why or how, but I just I had the idea. I told uh, I told Hawk, I said, look, uh, I'm I'm going to give you the I'm going to set you up, and I'm going to give you the pile driver, and when I turn around to get to my feet, I said, I want you to beat me to my feet. I want you to already be standing there so that after the pile driver, I turn around and I'll, I'm just looking you right in the face, and it, 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 you know, I don't, I, I just thinking, you know, this, I'm, we're just trying to think of ways to put these guys over as Superman and nothing could have worked better. I mean, that, that had never been done before. And so we're right in the middle of the match and all of a sudden I pick up, uh, I pick up Hawk, boom, big pile driver and the place where the, the crowd went crazy and they knew boy, Austin Island and the King had just beaten this, this super team of the road warriors and bang, I banged his head into the mat, and I turned around, and there he was, already beat me to my feet. He's already just standing there staring at me. And the place just went, the whole Coliseum, we had 10,000 people there, and it was just like a stunned silence. And uh, and then, of course, you know, he grabbed me, picked me up, body slammed me, and the people just went, they, they just couldn't believe it. They'd never seen anything like that. And so uh, the funny thing was, every time... I saw those guys after that. I mean, you know, they they came, they came through and then they went on their way and and went off and worked in the, the other territories and they came back through every now and then. But it then and then later on in the WWE, every time I saw Hawk and Animal, Animal would say, "King made us, King made us with that not no selling the pile driver. That was that was a king. That 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 is what made us." Uh, our, our like career. I mean, he would he would credit me with like making the road warriors by telling the no sell the pile driver. 
that explains something. Because I don't know if you remember uh, on Raw during the Attitude Era when they were doing the thing where Hawk was having issues with alcohol. He came out and sat next to you on commentary and said, like, Jerry, do you remember the time you told me to no-sell the pile driver? Do you remember that? No. He said that on Live USA. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'll try to find a clip and send it to you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, because everyone's just like, what? <laughs> what did he just say? Um, did he just tell everybody what just really happened? Well, like I just did on the podcast? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, how about we mentioned we're going to be talking about April 25th, your partner against the Road Warriors, Austin Idol. Oh, gosh. It's a we'll long rivalry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, long rivalry and long history of stories. We could talk forever about the stories with Austin Idol and I. Um and I mean, I, I don't know what you, I don't even know what you want to talk about it matches or behind the scenes or whatever. But we just uh, Austin Island and I have had this like a I don't even know what the, not a love hate relationship or anything. But I mean, we've been we've been friends. And then we, I felt like he's done things in the to uh, uh, stab me in the back at times. And, all you know, by not not showing up sometimes when we had him booked. Uh, but uh, you know, that, it's one of those things that uh, I, I've always, I've always, uh, really liked Austin Idol and still to, still to, to this day. But, uh, uh, I mean, gosh, we, with some of the, some of the biggest matches that I ever had in, in Memphis involved Austin Idol, you know, uh, the, the first one that comes to mind is the, is the hair match, right. you know, and that was one of the things that, uh, that was one of the things that uh, I've talked about with Paul Heyman the other just last week up in WWE. I said, "Tell me again, Paul, what did Austin Idol say to you when as soon as the barber started cutting my hair?" And 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 uh, all of a sudden, Paul Heyman says, "Oh yes, Ted Cortese, the barber." And I said, "What? You remember Ted Cortese's name? This was that was actually the barber." <laughs> Actually, the barber that cut my hair he worked for Google. Matter of fact, he's still a hairstylist here in Memphis, and uh, he was he was my he was my hairstylist back in the day. And we had Ted Cortese there to cut my hair, and 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 Paul remembered the guy's name, and he said, "Yes, you sat down in the chair, and Ted Cortese, as soon as he put the clippers to your hair and ran it through the ran it through your head the first time, and all the hair started falling, he said Austin Idol came over to me and put his arm around me and said." We got them where we want them now, kid. <laughs> I, said, I said, what did he mean? And he said he knew that we we had, at that point we were we were in a position of power that we could ask for anything. And they, there was nothing, there was nothing that me or Jerry Jarrett could do about it. And trust me, trust me, he and Austin Idol, they they used that. They used that on us for a long time. I mean, they you know, that was uh, that was one of those deals where. They, you know, I mean, then that's happened. That's happened throughout wrestling. You know, the the a wrestler get themselves in uh, a position of power with the promoters, where they can just pretty much demand anything because you know they were when they just when they started shaving my head, they were the hottest things in our territory, and there was you know they could pretty much call the shots from that point on. I never thought about that part of the territory where you had, you, you had to be a little careful uh, with. How strongly you put over outsiders who are coming in for a few weeks? Oh my gosh, without a doubt. That's why you know. That's why uh, we we could see it happen around the country with different territories. 
you know, you, you, uh, you get somebody over stronger than, than who's, than somebody that's going to stay full time in your territory. I mean, you know, that's why we, uh, that was the way that we lasted in, in our Memphis territory, Jerry Jarrett and I, that's the only reason we outlasted, uh, the other territories was because I was always the guy that was kept as the top talent, the top, uh, good guy or bad guy, whatever you want to say. I was the top guy. And, uh, I, you know, they knew, we knew I wasn't going to go anywhere because I was part owner of the territory. Whereas on all the other territories, their top guys, when, when Vince or WCW came into existence with the, uh, with cable TV in the mid eighties, all those top guys said, Hey, I want to, I want to be seen on, on, uh, cable TV where I'll be seen all over the world rather than just in these, you know, local markets like like wrestling had been done, done all the all the years up till that time. And so all the top guys left these other territories and went to either Vince or went to WCW and and the territories just kind of withered up and died on the vine because they didn't have their top talent anymore. And that's why we were always careful to keep me as as the top guy so that then after that we could bring in we could still bring in anybody and make them you know, seem uh, a, a worthy opponent for me and, and keep the fans interest and, and, and still seem to, and still be able to compete with the WWE or WCW at the time. All right. Well, while we're talking about you and uh, Paulie reminiscing about one of the most infamous nights in Memphis wrestling history, uh, I'm sure you have more than you can tell us about Tommy Rich, Tommy Wildfire Rich. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, Tommy Tommy Rich. It goes all the way back to uh, uh, when he was Tommy Richardson, and he lived in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And he, I, I don't remember exactly who he was friends with, or whether it was. I guess it was Jerry Jarrett or maybe Eddie Marlin, family friends. And uh, I remember going up to Jerry Jarrett's house, and, and back in back behind his house, he had like an old barn, and he had set up a ring in that barn, and it was like hot hundreds right in the middle of summertime <clears throat> and it was it seemed like 150 degrees in there and we'd go up there and, and and he didn't ask me to come very often but uh but he did ask me to come up and work out one time with tommy rich and this was just you know i mean he was what maybe 16 or 17 years old i mean just really you know hadn't even hadn't even had a match yet and so I remember going up there and working out and and uh, helping him get ready to to uh, start there in, in Memphis. And and uh, oh, gosh, I have one of one of my all time favorite matches was uh, it was me. It was me and Tommy. It was me and Tommy in a in a championship match, I believe. And I had already done something to where and we were. This is all the way back at Channel 13. He was just getting started. And I had already done something where his ribs were taped up and we were having this, we were having the title match and Sam Bass was in, Sam Bass was in my corner. And, uh, so I, I and Tommy Marlin was, a, was the referee. Anyway, I wound up, Sam gave me a handful of powder. The referee was kind of, or Sam distracted the referee and I threw the powder in Tommy's eyes and covered him one, two, three for the, for the win for the championship. And, uh, at about that time, he, he, Tommy starts, 
making a big comeback. So he knocks me down, and he gets Sam Bass in the ring, and he, he starts nailing Sam, and uh, Tommy's pounding on both of us. And all of a sudden, out of the back comes my buddy, big old Plowboy Frazier. And big old Plowboy comes in the ring, and this this was all of these all of these little incidents that we had led up to that. I had given Plowboy Frazier, uh, I had conned him into coming out out of the fields and being a wrestler. We we so told everybody that Sam Bass and I were driving through Mississippi and saw this guy pulling a plow, and not 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 with a horse pulling the plow. He was actually pulling the plow, and uh, somebody was plowing along behind him, and so we. Get, he was this big seven foot tall guy, and we told everybody that we went out, pulled him out of the fields, and brought him in as my partner. And the way we paid him to be my to be my partner in wrestling was I was giving him these big phony diamond rings, right? And 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 we were telling everybody that every week I'd go out on TV and I'd get Plowboy this big old ring and tell him how great it was, how much it was worth, and. He was just oh neighbor, this is beautiful and all this kind kind of stuff. And then finally, uh, so so then that match when when Plowboy comes out to save us, he starts hitting Tommy Rich in the head with the, with these rings, right? And Tommy of course starts bleeding, blood is going everywhere. And and then uh, Ron Mikolajic was who was a football player, and he had he was just trying to get into wrestling, but he was a big strong guy, and he was a he is an ex-pro football player, and all of a sudden we had Ron come out to save Tommy Rich, and uh, and so Ron comes out and starts pounding me and Plowboy and and Sam Bass around, and he didn't he didn't have a clue. He ran and he ran into like a linebacker running or like an offensive lineman running into Plowboy. He knocked Plowboy, who was seven feet tall, weighed four hundred pounds, knocked him halfway across the ring into the corner, and he I'll never forget Plowboy says. Oh my God, neighbor, let's get out of here. <laughs> this, this guy was, and then he grabbed pants, he grabbed Sam Bass by his pants and just tried to pull him down and he ripped Sam's pants completely off. Oh my God. Oh Sam was just in there with his, just his little tidy whiteies on. And he just, this guy was so strong. Uh, but anyway, uh, that was, that was one of my favorite. But I, of course, I have a million matches with Tommy Rich. And, and then I was proud of the fact that, you know, he went on to become, well, I guess the youngest ever NWA world champion. Yep. Uh, Beat Harley uh, Race. Yeah, we were, we, you know, Jerry and I were really, really proud of that fact that, you know, that we got Tommy started and then all of a sudden he's the world champion. And um, He was and then, red hot in Georgia for a while. Oh, my gosh. Without a doubt. He was the hottest thing in wrestling for a, long, for a while. You're right. And then, of course, he's, he's, uh, he's, the great thing about him is he's still around and he's still, you know, Still around <clears throat> Memphis, and and uh, I think he's living in Atlanta now. But he's still he'll he'll come back and work with us at a moment's notice, and he's going to be back here April twenty fifth. Might as well complete the trio. Uh, Dangerous Doug Gilbert. Dangerous Doug Gilbert. <clears throat> we talked about calling him on the phone and having him on here, which we could do in a, in a couple. Well, well, we'll do that in a in a couple weeks as uh, <clears throat> as we get closer to to the Fitz Mania. Uh, he he loves to talk on these podcasts and and uh, gosh I mean you know Doug is Doug is another one of those guys that I saw come up from the time he was what seems like a baby uh, because I started you know the first guy I we started at about the same time Doug's father uh, Tommy Gilbert 
uh, he, he was the first guy I won that ever won the Southern. I won the first championship, the Southern heavyweight championship from Tommy Gilbert. And then, uh, we went on work. We worked together a lot. And then of course, all of a sudden, uh, after Tommy had been around a lot and, and then all of a sudden here comes Eddie Gilbert, Tommy's son and Doug's brother. And, uh, man, we had a great run with Eddie and it was, I told people this a lot. I think, I think there was some sort of a, a little bit of a family dissension there, uh, with, because Eddie, Eddie grew up, uh, you know, as a kid watching, you know, living at home with his dad and his brother, Doug and his dad, Tommy, and, and watching wrestling from the time he was a baby. Um, but, but it was funny. And I, and I guess you just, you just assume that your kid, if you, if your kid is growing up watching you in the ring, that he's going to be your biggest fan. But in, in actuality, some kind of way, uh, Eddie grew up and, and he was my biggest fan. And he, and I, and I really never really said anything about it, but Tommy would joke about it sometimes, you know, like, you know, here's my kid and he's your biggest fan. But anyway, Eddie, in throughout his career, he sort of patterned his career after mine and sort of tried to emulate me. We did, you know, he became the king and he threw fire and all of this sort of stuff. And he worked almost just, you know, just you watch his match and he worked a lot like me. And so, uh, and then of course, uh, then of course, Eddie or Doug came along and their, their styles were, were Doug and Eddie's styles were very different, but, uh, uh, Doug's, I mean, just a, a great, a great worker and he could do, he can, you know, go either way, good guy, bad guy or whatever, and good talker. And, and man, it's, it seems like now towards, you know, the, over the last, geez, four or five years, I've probably worked with Doug Gilbert more than I have anybody. I mean, it's just, it seemed like, you know, he, we, he, we were the two established guys that have stayed around the Memphis area our entire careers. And, uh, you know, any, anytime anybody, Burt Prentice or anybody runs a show, uh, we're the two guys, we're the two go-to guys, you know, so, uh. When I came down to see you, Lance, and Dave, that was the main event, was you and Doug. Yeah, and that's gonna be the, that's gonna be the main event tonight. There you go. <laughs> tonight up in Bradford, Tennessee. So, uh, yeah, Doug's, uh, and, and he's gonna be in the main event the April 25th down at, uh, Fitz, Fitzmania. So, yeah, Doug is, uh, I can't, say enough good things about doug he's he's been a trooper man all right uh how about kurt henning wow kurt henning uh to me you know i I look back people ask me about great workers and who's some of the best guys you ever work with in the business one of the first names that come to mind always is nick bockwinkle he was one of the smoothest ever and then of course i loved working with Terry Funk, uh, Dory Funk was great. Harley Race, all you know, some of these great champions. But uh, uh, I'd, I'd have to say that Kurt Henning was as good as they come. I mean, I, I just you, I don't, I've never heard of anybody that worked with Kurt that said they had a bad match with him. He was great. He was just awesome, and um, and 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 such a cool guy too. Behind the scenes, uh, out of, outside the ring, and just. I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't get to hang around with Kurt a lot. Once we got to the, once we got to the WWE, I got, I got up there and he'd already been doing the Mr. Perfect gimmick. 
uh, for a while after, of course, you know, he came into Memphis in uh, 1988, was it? That, yeah. Uh, yeah, 1988, and uh, dropped the title to me, the AWA World Heavyweight Championship I won from Kurt Henning. And then right after that, Kurt went right up to the WWE and became Mr. Perfect. And so uh, it was like not until 93 did I come to the to the um, WWE. And then that's when I, you know, start started get to hang around Kurt again for a bit. But then, of course, and, you know, not long after that, Kurt passed away. But uh, there was there was some funny stories. Kurt was Kurt was a. Uh, Outside the ring, you never. I mean, he would. He had to be on the same par with uh, Owen Hart as far as pulling ribs and and uh, having fun and just being doing things that you would never. You know, you would think he couldn't get away with, but he was. Uh, he was just that kind of guy. Um, I mean, I'll never forget something. He, he was. He was known for. Uh, uh, well, I'm not even going to tell that story. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny story at a bar one time that uh, I, I saw him uh, do something that he shouldn't have done, and we all, everybody, got in trouble a little bit over it. It may have been, it may have been after the infamous, uh, uh, what was that plane ride from hell? I'm not, I'm not sure if that was part of that. I think he did. I think, I think he got in a fight on the plane. Uh, I mean, Kurt, Kurt was something else, but he was, he was just a. Uh, he was just a really cool guy, and then of course now his son is uh, up in the WWE, uh, doing well as well. And um, uh, I, I, you know, I just I, I wish I had more stories about him. But of course the the, the championship match there in Memphis is, is goes down in history for me as being probably my my top match I was ever in. You know. Okay. Uh, anything on a guy who had more of a Memphis run than people remember? Uh, Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff, uh, he did. He had. A, he had, you're right. He had a pretty good run in Memphis. Uh, he was. He was. Um, I'll never forget when Jerry brought him in. Jerry would just sit around and say, "My gosh, look at this guy." I mean, his physique. He, he, he at the time when Paul Orndorff was a young guy, he had the best physique, the best long blonde hair, nice, you know, really nice looking guy, and just uh, he was like the perfect. You could, if you sat down and tried to, uh, uh, you know, draw up a, a perfect baby face, that would be what Paul Orndorff, Orndorff was like at that time. Um, and I, I remember he, he was just really green when he came in. He didn't know a whole lot. He did. He wasn't uh, a great worker yet, but he just looked the part so much. I mean, you know, just uh, and that's why they put him right. Jerry put him right with me because I. I Supposedly, I could have a pretty good match with just about anybody at the time, and 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 Paul and I had some, Paul and I had some good matches. Not nothing really stands out uh, about any any particular match, but uh, I just know that he really he really made a big impact when he first came in here. And he and you you would probably know more than me about how long he stayed, but he he was here he was here a pretty good while. Yeah, I mean, this is before uh, we have uh, video of Memphis, but Wikipedia says it was like 76 into June, or even later, 77, 78. So, yeah, he was there for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why I don't mean, he, he, he really learned. This was like his first de- first territory, and he really learned the ropes here. He really learned how to work and how to be a star here in Memphis. Yeah. 
Uh, why don't we finish with, uh, let's see, who's a good one to finish with? How about Harley Race? Harley Race. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there was some sto- some stories uh, going around uh, and towards the end of, uh, or, and I don't know, the end of his career or whatever, but that uh, Harley Race and I didn't get along or he didn't like me or I didn't like him. Uh, but that, as far as I was concerned, uh, I never had a problem with Harley Race. Worked some great matches with him. I mean, just, but of course, anybody that worked with Harley would say, I mean, he was one of the greatest of all time. You could go in and we, we were just talking about this. Who were we talking about this in the dressing room with the other day about how guys nowadays, you know, want to lay out their entire match, every move. And, and I, I just was telling somebody, I said, man, I remember having a 60 minute draw or we call it a Broadway having going 60 minutes and the time limit expired with Harley race. And we didn't even speak to each other before the match. Every everything was called in the ring. You didn't you didn't have to you didn't have to go in and rehearse, or you didn't have to go out and and call you know have something to call before the match. Uh, that that's of course that that used to happen a lot back in the the seventies and, and early eighties and everything. But uh, but nowadays people they they can't even comprehend. Uh, doing something like that, but but that was what one of the things that Harley was great at. He was just uh, so smooth in the ring and a legitimately tough guy, and and uh, everybody respected him for that, you know. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't get, you know, we didn't get to have Harley that that often. We only, you know, we would get uh, we would get like a week on the NWA champion, maybe once a year, and I think it would be like Harley would come in for us once or twice a year at the most. And um, uh, but I do if I'm not mistaken, we may have done a 60 minute match and and then maybe even booked a 90 minute match after that. But uh, in a return match. But yeah, Harley was uh, Harley was one of the best ever. I mean, and and and, uh, you know, I just from afar, I would hear about it. I mean, Harley had a had a. Uh, kind of a rough life. A lot of it he he kind of brought on himself, you know. With uh, he had some bad habits outside the ring as far as drinking, smoking, that sort of stuff. But uh, you know, had an accident where his wife was killed in a in a car wreck, and then uh, and then of course uh, you know the the end for Harley was was sad as well. You know, he just kind of went downhill, and and I, I would never forget um, Ric Flair. Ric Flair came into. Um, the dressing room, I think it was some, it wasn't Atlanta. Where was Harley when, when he passed away? He was, he was in some, uh, <clears throat> he was in some hospital and they were trying to get him back to, uh, St. Louis. Uh, but Flair said, Rick Flair said, man, I went in to see Harley today and he said, he is, he is not doing well at all. And, uh, and I said, wow, that's bad. And he said, but you know what? I said, what? He said, he was still smoking. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, right there in the hospital bed. There's, uh, and I think he's like, you know, he had lung cancer or something. And he was, you know, he was, he was one of those guys, the guys that he was going to do things his way right up to the very end. And he did. Wow. So the fact he made it as long as he did is, uh, pretty impressive. 76 he oh, made it to. Oh, absolutely. Right. You're right. 
All right. Well, I'm glad we did this today. We got so many more. I mean, I could sit here and ask you names for for days, and we have many more shows. And uh, I love the visual of you and Paul Heyman at Raw, just remembering the night that shocked Memphis, that uh, is still so remembered, and will be uh, kind of celebrated again on April 25th in Tunica. Tunica, Mississippi, Fitzgerald's Casino, and I'm going to get uh, I'm going to get Paul to cut us a promo that uh, we can use here on the um, on the podcast here in the next couple weeks. If we, you know, if we if we do get to have the thing, I'm just looking. At, I'm checking out Twitter right now to see if there's any news that's happened while we were uh, doing the podcast here. And, you know, all all everybody's talking about is the fact that uh, every place is out of toilet paper. Have <laughs> <laughs> you noticed that? Yeah, well, I saw pictures of people. I mean, they got like ten stacks high of big things in their shopping cart. I'm like, come on, the spare square, as they said on Seinfeld. Help help people out. Yeah, I saw it. Uh, they had a film at a Costco when they opened the doors uh, somewhere. I don't know if it's California or where at a Costco. And it was like one of those uh, Black Friday things, you know, at Christmas time uh, where they open the doors and people just go crazy and fight each other. Well, they were doing that trying to get the toilet paper. It was crazy. I mean, I saw something online today from it was supposed to be some major report that said this could be something that's still affecting us in the fall. So we're going to have to figure out how to be uh you know rationing this stuff i think in the uk they in the uk they oh no that, that was a joke that i said actually but yeah this is uh i don't know i don't know we're just gonna figure it out anything new on twitter in the last hour well you know anything can be toilet paper if you wipe your butt with it i guess that might have to be the philosophy going forward people, people used to talk about the big uh, sears catalogs it used to be like 200 pages or whatever. They say, they, they, well, at least it turned out to be good toilet paper if they kept them long enough. People are going to keep their junk mail now. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, uh, I, just, I don't see anything. Uh, I don't see anything. Let's see. John Cena just says, I've been incredibly fortunate to be a part of some historic moments. And there is a lot going on, but tonight our family will bring entertainment to yours. SmackDown tonight on Fox. So that uh, he's uh, that will be a historic moment tonight. Is, uh, this this show with no audience and and John Cena is going to be there, right? I hate to say it, but it should do a pretty big number, right? There's, I mean, everybody's oh, sure. everybody's inside, right? And 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 also Monday uh, Monday on uh, Raw, uh, we got Stone Cold Steve Austin coming back. Oh my gosh! I forgot that was this Monday. Oh, wow! That could be interesting. Yep. Well, stay tuned, everybody. We're all going to figure this out together. That's exactly right. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Hopefully, we provided a a bit of a distraction to people. Anything else before we close out? No, that's it. Just everybody's in the wait and see mode. So uh, check out. well, I'm, I just know you're saying check out SmackDown tonight, but we'll, you will have checked out SmackDown. But be sure to check out Raw Monday night and find out where we are and what's going to happen. What happens with Stone Cold on 316 Day? All right, sounds great. We'll be back next week. Sorry we missed a few shows, but a little crazy. But we are back in the groove, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody.